Now, what I hold before you is the very first iPod that I ever owned. This is the very first generation iPod Touch. I got this as a Christmas gift from my parents when I was a teenager, and it was one of the hottest gifts of that particular holiday season. It wasn't cheap, and I was thrilled when I got to open it on Christmas morning. But I did some research this week, and if I were to sell this iPod right now, I could probably make 20 or 30 bucks if I'm lucky. The software update stopped coming a really long time ago. I eventually stopped using it. The only purpose it serves now is that we sometimes let Javen and Nolan play Angry Birds on it. You see, Christmas is a season where many of us will invest a lot of time, money, and thought into gifts like this one. And that often leads to a really unhealthy amount of stress and anxiety. We're bombarded with advertisements of all the stuff that we didn't even know we needed until somebody told us that we needed it. And the truth is, of course, that we don't actually need that item, and we often don't have the money for it anyway. But we have to buy gifts for family members and friends, maybe even the mailman. And we don't just want any gifts. We want the right gift, the gift that will make them happy and will also make us feel good about ourselves. That's why we're willing to beat each other up on Black Friday at Walmart. But the truth is that most of the time, the gifts that we love so much, that we search so diligently for, the gifts we spend so much money on, quickly become outdated, neglected, and unwanted. Kind of like this old iPod. Well, at Prairie View, we know just how stressful Christmas can be because of all the gifts that you have to buy. So we've come up with an unofficial church holiday gift guide to help you out. And my hope is that you'll find some good ideas for what you can give the people around you this year. But here's the catch. If you're a follower of Christ, the gifts that we're going to discuss are gifts that God has already given you. And on top of that, they're gifts that you're called to share with others. The gifts we're talking about are a lot better than a PlayStation 4, a Fitbit, the newest iPhone, or even a Lexus with a giant red bow on the roof. I always look at those commercials and think the bow itself has to cost like a hundred bucks. <laughs> but the gifts we're talking about are better than all of those. These gifts are valuable by kingdom of God standards. These gifts never get outdated and these gifts never go out of style. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide, as Joshua mentioned, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading in Matthew or in the rest of Scripture, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time of year. Uh, again, this is a time of year that so many of us treasure, so many of us love. It brings so much joy to so many of us. Um, however, at the same time, for a lot of us, this is a season that can be extremely difficult, um, especially if it's a season of illness or some other kind of hardship. Um, if it's a season where it's the first time you've had to celebrate without a loved one, uh, we pray for those people, Lord, this holiday season. Father, we're grateful that we have the privilege of celebrating the birth of your son, but also at communion, the death and resurrection. Of your son. We are so grateful for that gift. And Father, I pray for this congregation, 
Uh, we know we have people dealing with illness right now. We know that we have people in the hospital. We pray for the trustees uh, with the birth of Miles. We pray that you would keep them healthy and safe and strong in the days and weeks ahead as they prepare to come home. And we pray for all the other requests that are written in our bulletin or written on the chalkboard outside or maybe even unspoken. Um, I pray that you would watch over this church, watch over this family of believers. And be with us this morning as we hear from your word. I pray that we would not only be open to your word, but through your grace and by the power of your spirit, we would do the hard work of submitting to your word, even when it's difficult. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for this time of year where you remind us of the birth of your son. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, the gift idea idea we're going to talk about today is the gift of value. And you might also call it the gift of human dignity. Ultimately, we're going to look at several stories in Jesus's ministry, all bunched up together in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we do that, we need to hit on a couple of core passages that have to be mentioned any time we talk about human value and dignity from a biblical perspective. The first one we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We've read this passage multiple times on Sunday mornings, and here we are again. And that's because this passage really is that important. As God creates everything we see, he makes humans, male and female, in his own image. We even read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God breathes life into Adam from the dust of the earth. Everything else that God creates... Plants, animals, mountains, fields, birds, the stars, all that stuff is good. And we should steward that stuff accordingly. We should respect those things accordingly. But only human beings are created in God's image. And in a verse that PETA or other animal activists may not like, Jesus himself tells his disciples that they are worth far more than many sparrows. What's the difference between sparrows and humans? Well, humans are created in God's image. Sparrows aren't. Everything else God created is good. But human beings are qualitatively different than everything else in all of creation. So as much as we love Harambe, sorry, Harambe, only humans are created in God's image. And that includes every single human being. Male and female, old and young, rich and poor, Trump and Clinton voters, all created in God's image, all possessing an undeniable value and dignity in the eyes of their creator. And then we get to another passage, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. David writes there, for you, talking of God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David clearly teaches that from the very beginning of his existence, God was responsible for giving him life. That's not just true of David, it's true of every other human being as well. David says that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. He was not simply the result of biology. He was not just a product of chance. Saying that he was created in the depths of the earth harkens back to Adam being created, created from the dust. David believes that just like Adam, God breathed life into him. So you put Psalm 139 next to Genesis 1, and the point becomes that much clearer. Human beings are qualitatively different from everything else in God's good creation. But bearing God's image comes with great responsibility. Like Adam and Eve before us, we are called to be God's representatives on earth. We're called to reflect God's image fully and completely within creation. But there's a problem. Adam and Eve didn't fulfill that responsibility. Neither do you and neither do I. Why not? Well, that goes back to the Garden of Eden as well. The problem is sin and rebellion, disobedience. It wasn't just Adam and Eve's sin. We have sin of our own as well. And that sin has a marring, tainting, and corrupting effect on the image of God within us. Because of our sin, we don't fully and completely reflect God's image the way we were created to do. That's the bad news. But there is some good news. While sin corrupts and taints God's image within us, that image was not completely obliterated. In the words of theologian John Calvin, it was defaced... It was subjected to deformity, but it was not utterly destroyed. That means that even in our sin, even in our rebellion, every single one of us still has an undeniable worth and value in the eyes of the God who created us. So when we talk about value this morning, that's what we mean. That's what we mean in our church's core values when we say that all people are valuable in God's eyes. No matter how old they are, or where they're from, or what color their skin is, or what language they speak, or what sin they're guilty of. All people are valuable in the eyes of God. However, sinful people like us don't always understand this, do we? We don't always practice this in real life. Instead of treating each other with dignity and respect, we often use and abuse each other. But there is one man who perfectly reflected God's image. One man who consistently treated others as created in God's image. That's because he's God in the flesh. And his birth is what we celebrate at Christmas. So let's read more about that man. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Jesus is approached by a leper seeking to be clean. Now, this man's primary problem isn't his skin disease. His bigger problem are the consequences of his disease. Because of his disease, he's unclean. And because he's unclean, he's an outcast. This man is shunned from his community in every way imaginable. And the only thing that could ever change that is if his leprosy goes away. So the man confidently requests that Jesus cleanse him. And that's when Jesus does something that would have horrified the people who were watching. He specifically makes a point to reach out and touch this unclean man. Now, Jesus does not have to touch someone to heal them. He does not have to touch someone to cleanse them. He can do it from a distance, as we see in the next story. But he specifically reaches out and puts a hand on this man's shoulder. The man is healed of his disease. But more importantly, Jesus sends him to the priest to offer a sacrifice. Because not only is his disease healed, but when he talks to the priest, he can be restored back into his community. No longer an outcast. So Jesus reaches out and touches someone that you're not supposed to touch. He treats this man like a human being, not a stray dog. He values this man as someone created in God's image, even though many people around him may not have viewed him that way. Continue in the passage, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. So it's not just lepers that Jesus associates with. He even associates with Gentiles, but not just any Gentile. This man is a Roman centurion. He works directly for the enemy. Many would have criticized Jesus for helping someone not like him, someone on the wrong side of the conflict. But Jesus does exactly that. He heals the centurion's servant from a distance. That servant, presumably a Gentile as well. When Jesus looks at this centurion, he doesn't see a stranger. He doesn't see an enemy. He sees a human being created in God's image. A human being with value and worth, and not to mention great faith. Pick up in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So first, Jesus heals a woman. And back then, typically, women didn't have much in the way of social status. He heals people possessed by demons, too. People who, like the leper we just read about, were often viewed as outcasts, 
maybe even freaks. He heals people with other illnesses, diseases, and disabilities as well. He heals another woman in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Again, not just any woman, but an unclean woman. He raises a dead girl to life in the same passage, reaching out and touching her, something you're not supposed to do. Jesus heals three more demon-possessed men in chapters 8 and 9. And then in the beginning of chapter 9, he heals a paralytic, someone that lots of people would have viewed as useless. You know, if you didn't know any better, it almost seems as though Jesus is intentionally seeking these people out. It's almost like Jesus intentionally spends time with the kind of people that no one else wants to spend time with. The kind of people who everybody else thinks have no real value whatsoever. And then look at Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, the only thing worse than one tax collector is a bunch of tax collectors. These people were scoundrels, traitors, extortioners. And yet Jesus eats with them. Jesus talks with them, listens to them, laughs with them. And as if that's not bad enough, he even invites one of these tax collectors to be in his group of 12 closest followers. Now, Jesus does not say that these people are sinless. He says the exact opposite. They aren't sinless. But Jesus does acknowledge that they're still people. They're created in God's image. And God really does care about them. Far more than they even know at this point in the story. But it's not just Matthew 8 and 9. Throughout his ministry, we see story after story after story of Jesus treating people not as unclean, not as Gentiles, not as enemies, not as just resources to be used for his own advantage. He treats them like people. Why? Well, it's certainly true that these healings and cleansings and resurrections all these miraculous events serve to establish Jesus's identity as God's son. They also show people what God's kingdom is like, what the new heavens and new earth will be like in the future. But on top of that, Jesus reminds his audience and he reminds us that all people are of great value to God, bearers of his image, and they are to be treated as such. Now, again, let's be honest, we live in a world where many people are considered more or less valuable than others. In our day and age, you might not think of people with leprosy or people possessed by demons, but who do you think of? 
Who are the people today that we're tempted to view as less valuable? The people we're tempted to look at as less than a bearer of God's image. Maybe it's the mentally and physically handicapped because they don't really have anything to offer us, right? Or maybe it's prisoners. I once heard someone say that more prisoners ought to just kill themselves in jail because it would save taxpayer money. Doesn't sound like somebody who views that prisoner as created in God's image. Maybe it's the poor. Instead of viewing them as bearers of God's image, we view them as nothing more than a nuisance or an eyesore in our pretty community. Maybe it's the elderly or the terminally ill who we sometimes wish would just hurry up and die. Maybe it's the unborn child that we're tempted to view as a burden or a mistake. Psalm 139 would have something to say about that. Maybe it's the person of a different race than us. At the 1787 Constitutional Convention, southern and northern states reached a compromise by declaring that for legal purposes, African-American slaves were only three-fifths of a person, inherently less valuable, less than image-bearers of God. Maybe it's the person on our screen when we watch pornography. We view them not as somebody's child or sibling or parent, not a bearer of God's image, They're just an object to be used for our pleasure. Maybe it's the immigrant family down the street who doesn't speak our language. Or maybe it's the fast food worker who messed up our order. Every single one of these people is created in God's image. And as followers of Christ, as people of the word, we ought to recognize that better than anybody else and treat these people accordingly. One of the greatest gifts that you can give someone this Christmas is to simply treat them like a human being. To ascribe to them the same value, dignity, and worth that their creator ascribes to them. Now let's go back to Jesus for a moment. It's tempting to look at these stories and put all of our focus on how Jesus was just such a wonderful moral example. Such a wonderful example of how to treat people, and we should really just try hard to be more like him. And while Jesus was a wonderful moral example in his earthly ministry, that's not all he was. That's not all he did. We don't celebrate the birth of some guy who treated people with kindness. He's the one human who really, truly, fully, and perfectly reflected God's image. The one human who wasn't marred or corrupted or tainted by sin and rebellion. Because he is God in the flesh. So if there's anyone worthy of being treated with dignity, value, and respect, it's got to be Jesus, right? And yet, he's the one who suffered the ultimate indignity. Stripped, mocked, beaten, tortured, finally killed. He's the one who suffered the ultimate shame. He's the one who was treated like an enemy, a Gentile, a freak, a burden, a nuisance that had to be eradicated. He took that indignity at the hands of people like you and people like me on behalf of people like you and people like me. That indignity happened on the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed. 
But look back one more time at the end of Matthew chapter 9, the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus prays that God would raise up laborers for his harvest, and then he sends his disciples out to do just that. He charges them to do all the same things that we just saw Jesus doing. Heal, cast out demons, raise the dead, eat with sinners, proclaim the kingdom of God. Allow me to propose that you too are being sent out by Christ this very morning. Now, in all likelihood, you don't have those same supernatural abilities. If you do, I'd be a little bit disappointed that you took this long to tell me. You might not be able to raise people from the dead. You might not be able to instantly cure diseases. You might not be able to cast out demons. But you can show people value. You can reach out and touch people who nobody else wants to touch. You can share a meal with people who no one else wants to be seen with. You can leave here and in the name of Christ, show dignity and value to people who nobody else thinks is worth their time. That's what Jesus did. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. You're created in God's image. And I'm created in God's image. And while that image is corrupted and tainted by sin, it's not destroyed. In fact, through the indignity that Christ suffered on the cross, that image of God is being restored within us. By God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, the powerful word of God, we're being remade into people who really, truly, and fully reflect the image of God. And one day, upon our death or Christ's return, that restoration will be complete. But I pray that in the meantime, as we stress out about what to give people during the Christmas season, I pray that we would give people a gift. Give people a refreshing reminder that they have value, worth, and dignity. That we would tell them and that we would show them that they matter to God and they matter to us even if they don't matter to anyone else. Giving that gift of value, showing people that gift of value, the value that's already there, that is one of the greatest gifts that you could possibly share this Christmas. So I pray this morning as we leave that we would be sent out by Christ to do exactly that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, our fallenness, that you still sent your son to die for us. We didn't deserve that. We were not worthy of that. And yet you did it anyway. And Father, thank you. Thank you that you have created us in your image. That we are not just chunks of flesh. We are not just animals that walk upright. We're not just creatures, but we are bearers of your image. And I pray that as we look at one another, as we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look at people who don't know Christ, as we look ourselves in the mirror, we would be reminded that you care about people created in your image. I pray that we would show that in the way that we love people, in the way that we care for people, in the way that we treat people. 
Thank you for your son who did what Adam and Eve didn't do, did what we haven't done. And that's fully, completely obey you. Fully and completely reflect your image. And thank you that he wasn't just born. He wasn't just a moral example. He wasn't just sinless. But that his life led to a death where he was a sufficient sacrifice for our sin. (coughs) Thank you for the indignity that he took, the shame that he went through, so that we could become sons and daughters of yours. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the gift you've given us, and I pray that we would share that gift with others this Christmas. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.